it growing old or going out of style. I'm not afraid of anything. Who would give up what they want without a trial? Another Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 1st, 2018. We're all melting. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism, also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Her podcast, Stagecraft, is part of the Broadway Radio Network, and she is a co-host of Theater Talk on PBS. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. Jan, on Broadway and Me, you have a wonderful post about what we should be reading this summer. Summer Reading for Theater Lovers 2018. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, for the past 10 years, maybe 11 years, I've put together a summer reading list of books (laughs) that people can uh, read. And it's an eclectic list of their novels and memoirs and sometimes just theater history. Um, You would think that... uh, I'd have enough of theater with just going to see it. Um, But I am that sort of crazy person that when I'm not at the theater seeing a show, I'm reading about theater. And so so this is a way for me to justify the reading I've done um, and to make a list and share it with other folks. Are you a beach reader or do you hole up in beautiful air conditioning and read? I never use air conditioning. (gasps) You are like living in a cat in a hot tin roof. I know. I just don't like air conditioning, so I sometimes put on a fan. I think today I'm going to put on a fan, but uh, I like the hot weather. Um, we have a we have a terrace on uh, attached to our apartment, and so that's where I do um, my summer reading. Uh, also, in my summer reading list, I customarily uh, suggest a, a cocktail. This year, <laughs> I did, this year I didn't do a cocktail of uh, of choice. I don't think. I don't know why I didn't. But um, if anybody who usually reads the list is looking for the cocktail, this year, my husband is the bartender, and this year we're experimenting with Dubonnet and lime juice. Excellent. So uh, are are you from, uh, you know, I've never asked you about your past. Are you from the New York City area, or are you from? I am. I am. You are. I'm actually a native New Yorker. Wow. Excellent. Uh, a lot of my friends who are from the South uh, swear by the hot tea in the hot summer that it cools <laughs> them down. So uh, <laughs> anyway. No I, no, I don't think I'm going that route. Okay. <laughs> well, the alcohol usually helps, you know, tr- tr- <laughs> true New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, Peter is at the International Theater Festival in Lincoln, Nebraska this week, and he will return next week. And Jan, thank you so much for stepping in for Peter. Oh, I'm always happy to be here. All right. First up in our review section, Michael and Jan both saw Carmen Jones at Classic Stage Company. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with that? 
Yeah, this is a off-Broadway revival of the musical uh, that I thought I very likely would never see again. Carmen Jones, book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, music written by Georges Bizet for his 1875 masterpiece of an opera, Carmen, uh, the original libretto in French by Henri Maillac and Ludovic Halévy, based on the novel by Prosper Mérimée. Uh, the opera itself is set in Seville, Spain, circa 1820, and it's about a soldier named Don Jose who forgets his hometown girlfriend, Micaela, when he becomes obsessed with a spectacularly sexy gypsy girl named Carmen, who works in a cigarette factory. And Carmen dallies with Jose only briefly before she shifts her affections to the Toreador Escamillo, throwing Jose into a jealous rage that leads to murder. And it's a classic, classic opera, one, one of the most popular ever. Uh, Carmen Jones is set in the American South during World War II. Uh, Carmen is uh, now a girl who works in a parachute factory. Don Jose is Joe, a soldier who's headed for flying school. Escamillo is the prize fighter Husky Miller. And Micaela is the sweet, innocent Cindy Lou, uh, Joe's hometown girlfriend. Um, The original production ran December 2nd, 1943 to February 10th, 1945 for 503 performances. This show was produced on Broadway in between Oklahoma and Carousel. It was something that I, I'm, I'm not sure if Hammerstein had already started working on it before he worked with started working with Rogers on Oklahoma. But at any rate, he he uh, wrote it or finished it during <laughs> during um, that period, and it was produced on Broadway. It's amazing how quickly. It got up, and and it and five hundred and three performances was quite successful in in those days. Uh, in, in fact, Oklahoma, you know, of course, would would wind up running uh, for over two thousand performances. But that was uh, really the first show to have that kind of a, an epic run. And generally speaking, shows in those days ran far shorter. Um, the uh, and and this original Broadway production was was really really notable for having an all black cast, at which at the time, uh, well there had been shows with with all black cast, but this was a, a mainstream Broadway production uh, with book and lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein, and it was a, a whole different uh, situation than uh, shows like Shuffle Along, o- o- about which we may you know we have learned. Uh, more about that thanks to that Broadway show. Um, there is a film version of Carmen Jones, which in ex- in itself, the fact that it exists is extraordinary. 1954, big budget, 20th Century Fox, directed by Otto Preminger, starring Dorothy Dandridge, whose singing voice was provided by a 20-year-old Marilyn Horn, who would go on to be one of the great opera singers of her generation. And Harry Belafonte, uh, is Joe, and he was dubbed by a fellow named Laverne Hutcherson. Uh, the, the first London production of Carmen Jones was not till 1991, directed by Simon Callow. Um, and for that production, the orchestrations were reduced and jazzed up, as opposed to the original Broadway production, which basically featured the original operatic orchestrations with a, a somewhat smaller orchestra. Um, and for the London production of Carmen Jones, two singers each alternated in the roles of Carmen and Joe because they were thought to be uh, 
difficult enough that you would not want to have one person singing them eight times a week. Um, I happen to see that London production. I, I have not been to London that often and haven't seen that many shows there, but I did happen to see that. Uh, and then uh, there was a production by musicals in Mufti uh, um, some years ago that, uh, oh, here it is. Yeah. York Theatre Musicals in Mufti, January 2001. Suzanne Douglas was Carmen. Jason Rays, the original Simba in The Lion King was Joe. And Anika Nani Rose, and I believe one of her first um, professional gigs was Cindy Lou. Cindy Lou, not Carmen. Um, the current CSC production is directed by John Doyle and choreographed by Bill T. Jones. And the running time of the show has been trimmed by, I would say, almost an hour uh, to an intermissionless 90 minutes, maybe 95 minutes. Uh, and for the most part, incredibly enough, I would say the cuts are extremely well done and the storytelling is still very clear. Uh, Hammerstein's libretto uh, is considered by some, and, and I certainly agree to be the best ever English translation of a foreign language opera libretto, uh, although, of course, it's an adaptation. Hammerstein was just at a, a, a different level than most of the other uh, lyricists uh, who have uh, attempted English translations of operas, uh, although Sheldon Harnick has done some uh, opera translations, and he has his own version of the uh, tra traditional version of Carmen with the setting, the original setting retained and the original characters. Uh, but I'm not familiar with that uh, version, actually. I just know it exists. Um, uh, Carmen Jones, the dialogue and lyrics are written in African-American dialect with expressions such as you is and I is and pronunciations like dat's love and disflower. Uh, many of these uh, most of these are retained in this production, uh, I would say somewhat downplayed. I was really interested and a little concerned to see how all of that would play uh, to a present-day audience. Uh, but it seems, um, from what I can tell so far, that the reception of this production has been extraordinarily positive and that it doesn't seem to bother people. It's funny how... Uh, sometimes what you think will be a problem isn't and vice versa. But I, I certainly want Jan's thoughts on that when, when we get to it. Um, Doyle, Doyle's staging is in the round or rather in the rectangle, I guess you would say. It's, uh, the, the audience is on uh, four sides, but the playing space is rectangular rather than circular. Uh, the staging is very presentational and somewhat stylized. Uh, the cast acknowledges the six-piece orchestra at the start of the performance and at another point later in the action. Uh, sometimes the singers stand still and sing in one position for long periods. Carmen wears, uh, it looked to me like either the same dress or a very similar red, red dress throughout the show. And Husky Miller wears um, and actually a very cheap-looking boxing robe throughout, even though it makes it only makes sense for him to do so in the final scene that set outside the boxing ring. Um, Bill T. Jones's uh, major choreography is, is limited to a few numbers, but the big dance number beat out that rhythm on a drum, got a tremendous response from the audience. Um, the cast is, is very 
extraordinary. Anika Nani Rose is a, a coolly seductive and very sexy Carmen Jones. And she does a really impressive job of uh, adapting her musical theater voice to operatic music, uh, for the most part singing in a very strong, clear head voice rather than belting, uh, a little belting uh, at the end, uh, as I recall, and, and maybe one or two other places. Uh, as Joe, Clifton Duncan sounds lovely in most of his range, but um, his high notes are very effortful and sometimes painful, uh, at least at the performance I attended. I, I think he would have benefited from some transpositions, but um, I would say 99% of the music in in this production is the original operatic keys. David Aaron Domain, I suppose that's that's how you pronounce it, D-A-M-A-N-E-S, Husky, and Lindsay Roberts as Cindy Lou sound just gorgeously operatic, and I, I so much so that I think they could step in, into a production of Carmen in any of the world's major opera houses. Um, and I would say the score has been effectively downsized by orchestrator music supervisor Joseph Joubert and music director Sheldon Becton only in a few sections um, including the prelude did I really miss the sound of a full opera size orchestra sound design by Dan Moses Schreier is so excellent and natural that it almost seemed to me that the singers were unamplified but I I, I can't imagine that's true uh but they sounded as if they weren't, so in a good way, and, and that's the highest praise I can give. As I say, I, I really did not know if I would ever see uh, a production of Carmen Jones again, but um, it, it's fascinating how it seems to have really caught on, and I'm hearing very, very loud rumors of a Broadway transfer, so I would love, love, love to hear Jan's take on it. I was worried about this when I went to see it. Uh, I sort of grew up on the movie, uh, Mm. Carmen Jones. Uh, It was because it was one of the few major movies uh, that featured an all-black cast and a black cast uh, of, of, of stars, Dorothy Dandridge and Harry Belafonte and Pearl Bailey and Diane Carroll. And uh, so it was a it was a movie that I had seen and seen uh, often, but I worried for two reasons. One, time has passed, mm-hmm. and that sort of somewhat stereotypical uh, presentation of uh, Black life, African American life, can be problematic. And also because I have a major problem with John Doyle. Mm-hmm. Um, the stripping down of every production. There are times when I think that does work. I thought it worked beautifully in The Color Purple when he brought uh, revived that on Broadway. But I don't think it works in every performance. So I went into this in a very nervous way. And uh, about, I don't know, mid midway through maybe, be even not that far into the show i literally said to myself relax you're enjoying this (laughs) and uh and i was i thought it really worked and i thought it really worked uh primarily because of the uh actors and their voices i was totally taken with lindsey roberts who plays uh cindy lou i 
worried actually a little bit that she might outshine Anika Nani Rose, but um, Anika Nani Rose is a star, and it's very difficult to outshine her. She was sensational, I thought, in uh, the role of Carmen. I don't know how uh, well this would translate to a larger proscenium uh, kind of stage, but I thought it was a, a very, very good, very enjoyable production. I would say that this is going to be moot advice because I think it's pretty much sold out. The reviews were very good and uh, people have probably bought up the tickets uh, uh, through the end of its run, which I guess is mid-July, uh, although they may extend. Uh, but... Uh, it does depend where you sit in this. I don't think Doyle did as great a job as of uh, staging it so that you didn't feel as though you were missing out on expressions on the actors' faces, bits of business that were done when they were not facing uh, you, and it was obvious that something was going on. There was also a little bit of playfulness with members of the audience that I think would be hard to replicate uh, on a Broadway stage, even if it were someplace like Circle in the Round, um, Circle and Square. Um, <laughs> but uh, for this production, where it is, uh, I thought it was, again, really an enjoyable evening. Well, and I, I honestly, I had to look up the cast of the musicals in Mufti, and I had <laughs> sort of forgotten that Anika Nani Rose had played Cindy Lou in that production. Uh, most of us know her for roles in which she has not sung in uh, head voice in an operatic style. So, uh, but in both of those cases, that production and now this one, uh, she sings, you know, for the most part in. in in head voice operatically and that's just uh another part of her voice that that she still has and i i was really really very impressed by that so we'll uh uh i hope it does come to broadway they'll, they'll have to adapt the staging obviously mm -hmm. quite a lot uh but i really do hope that uh that a larger audiences uh get to see it and it's it's such a fascinating uh, I was going to say artifact in musical theater history, but hmm. now, but now it seems that it, it's been um, reclaimed and 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 is in considered still viable. So, um, I, and I'm I'm very surprised but delighted, and we will see if it does have this future life. Do you know off the top of your head, um, either one of you? Do you know if uh, Classic Stage Company has ever had a transfer? Uh, hmm. It's like a Peter question. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm trying to think <laughs> if uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think if who would be the natural commercial producer to transfer it. I I don't think that classic stage would transfer it on their own uh, if there's been a history of it. So uh, I don't know. Uh, and what theater would be the right theater for because we do have a gridlock of theaters for it. I mean, possibly uh, Circle in the Square where Once on this Island is currently playing, but uh, hmm, we'll have to see. That's, 
that uh, has been doing very well since the Tonys. So uh, we'll see, you know, hopefully for, for their sake, hopefully that will continue. But if not, yes, Circle in the Square would be the so ideal. It looks like Venus and Fur transferred in 2011. Uh, oh, uh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't remember that's yeah. where that started. No, I didn't remember either. IBDB is my friend. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. Uh, Right now, that was not some Felicia-ism that pulled out of my head, you know? <laughs> All right, so let's move forward into girls and boys. Jan and Michael both got a chance to see this. So, Jan, why don't you start us off with this one? Girls and Boys is a one-woman show. It's a transfer from the Royal Court in uh, London. And it is also, most notably, I think... Uh, a production of Audible.com, which is of the uh, online uh, the service by Amazon.com through which you can get audiobooks and other recordings of sometimes plays, but just recorded uh, 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 content. And Audible initiated this uh, approach to uh, presenting shows, specifically solo shows, with Harry Clark, which uh, Billy Crudup uh, did last year. It started at the Vineyard um, and then returned to the Vineyard because it was uh, so popular. This play, uh, written by uh, Dennis Kelly, who I believe, if I check the, the, the playbill, I believe was also um, the book writer for Matilda and has done some uh, other noteworthy uh, work. It's a very strange play and it's for me not as successful i'm just going to go right out there and say that as uh harry clark was um the story is built around a woman who uh is dealing with the life work balance it sort of starts with her coming out and uh introducing herself uh to us not by uh name but just saying hello she's listed in the playbill as woman and she comes out and starts talking about how she met the man she would marry and then pretty soon they have kids she also works as a producer of documentaries and so at the same time that her family is growing they have a daughter and then they have a son her career is growing and there's a tension about where she should be putting uh, her attention and how much support she should also be giving her husband who has a career of his own that is not growing in the same way at the same rate as hers is midway through the show we get some very shocking information about a tragedy that has occurred uh, in her life. And it's the rest of the play is a explanation of, of how this tragedy happened 
and how she is trying to to deal with it. The first part of the play is, is pretty lighthearted and uh, amusing, and the second part is obviously because it's dealing with this tragedy much less so. The two parts sort of clanked for me. They didn't seem to uh, fit, although Carrie uh, Mulligan, I've said it, on this podcast before. I think you invite me on, James, when there's a Carrie Mulligan play so that I can just make a fool of myself (laughs) for being (laughs) such a Carrie Mulligan uh, fan. She is, as she always is, excellent uh, in in her performance, but the play itself just doesn't quite work uh, because of the the, the uh, it's not the two parts not fitting, and also because it doesn't ultimately have a lot to say about the tragedy itself, how we deal with tragedy, or what I take to be its main theme. It doesn't have a lot to say. Or if it does, I'm not a champion of what it says about the challenges women have in uh, putting together, in balancing uh, their home life and their work life. So ultimately, this one did not work for me. What about you, Michael? Well, I think it's uh, uh, it's it portrays a incredible incredibly unsuccessful attempt uh, for uh, two people to have a two career family. And I, I thought it was more about the uh, husband's unfortunately extremely negative uh, reaction to the fact that uh, perhaps his wife is being more successful than him. And, and that the fact that she is, that she is having her own career at all and how that gets balanced with the children. It, it really starts as a, as you say, uh, the, this play starts as a comedic monologue almost. Mm-hmm. And then it, um, you know, but, it, but one problem in it in retrospect is that it's all supposed to be Carrie Mulligan's uh, character who remains nameless throughout the, the play, by the way, she's um, supposed to be telling us everything after the fact. Mm-hmm. And once you get to the, you know, to the end and you find out this horrific act of violence that wound up being committed, um, then you think, well, how could she have been so uh, humorous and, and offhand and nonchalant hmm. uh, during the first 45 minutes uh, or yep. so. Of yep, the play. as I said, it clanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but she, as an actress, uh, mm. the fact that she's able to pull that off is, is really, it, it's quite a tour de force. Uh, it's also interesting that this, as you say, this uh, was produced by Audible, which also produced the commercial off Broadway run of Harry Clark. And in both of these um, plays, uh, they, they ultimately lead to violence. Uh, so I, I, I guess maybe that's um, 
you know, uh, maybe especially in a one-person show, uh, it's felt that there has to be some kind of really big hook, uh, some suspense and leading to something really, really major, which I guess could be something positive rather than something tragic. But in, in both of these cases, it's, it, you know, there's violence involved. Uh, one one uh, interesting thing about uh, this show and, and a difference with Harry Clark is that most of Girls and Boys is a monologue direct address by Carrie Mulligan to the audience. But there are several scenes, I would say two, three, maybe four scenes where we see her interacting with her two young children, although um, they they are not actually depicted on stage. She uh, she is interacting with them and, and, you know, as if they were there in in the room, it's like a in her apartment, uh, in her apartment that she shares with, I guess, with her husband and her children. Um, so that uh, that you, you don't often see uh, in, in these things. It, it's not completely a monologue, although most of it is. And I um, yeah, I, I just think that there's no criticism of her performance, n- nothing, n- no, uh, nothing non-positive that I would say about her performance. She really is extraordinary. Uh, the writing uh, is very, very, uh, there is that tremendous shift. And, and as I said, in, in retrospect, I don't think it really makes much sense. But for whatever it's worth, I, I definitely felt that the audience at the Mineta Lane Theater where the show is playing, they seem to be wrapped throughout. Uh, I, I did not hear any noise. I didn't hear any coughing. It just seemed like everyone was was really paying 100% attention. And that's another tribute to her as well. Well, one of the things that's uh, really interesting about these Audible productions is that you can actually download them on audible.com. They, yeah, they they are there, and so if listeners uh, can't make it to New York to see Harry Mulligan in this, it closes July fifteenth. Uh, shortly after, I think it will be the production. Her performance will be available on Audible, and they can download it and listen uh, to it. Yes. All right. So um, that wraps it up for Girls and Boys, and we'll let you know when the Audible comes out. We'll be talking about it at least on today on Broadway, if not on this week on Broadway. We'll see how it how it transfers. It's very interesting to sometimes uh, when you're listening to an audio only, uh, it will enhance the thing because you get to build your own visual image in your head. That's true. All right, Michael, you got over to Roundabout Theater Company to see Skin Tight uh, at Laura Pell's. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, Peter discussed it, I believe, last week, so I won't go into great detail, but I, I, I will say I liked it very much. It's uh, by Joshua Harmon, and this is, I believe, the third play of his that I've seen, and I have really enjoyed all three of them. Bad Jews and Admissions were the other two that I saw. I think he's an extremely tar- talented playwright. Um, this is, as uh, Peter mentioned, a uh, fictionalized account of this situation that happened several years ago where Calvin Klein, the world famous designer, um, began a relationship with a much younger man uh, named Nick Gruber, who was described uh, throughout the media as a boy toy. There was a, I 
believe, a maybe a 45, 47-year age difference between them. And uh, the, the press just went crazy with it. Uh, and of course, you know, just hearing that, uh, the, the basic facts of that story, I'm sure many of us, uh, unfortunately, human nature would make judgments about that relationship and what it was based on and what it wasn't based on. Um, and that is the, the jumping off point for this really, really well-written play by Joshua Harmon. Um, in, in this play, the Klein stand-in is a fellow named Elliot Isaac, played by Jack Weatherall. And uh, the other major characters are his daughter, Jody Isaac, played by Adina Menzel. Uh, and uh, the boy toy, who is called Trey uh, in this show, is played by Will Bertain. And then Benjamin C Cullen, uh, who is the uh, – who is um, – Jody's daughter, the Adina Menzel's character's son, excuse me, uh, is played by Eli Gelb. And uh, it's basically about the interaction of, of those people. There are two other characters. Uh, there's a, a male uh, assistant named Jeff, played by Stephen Carrasco, and then a, a, a maid uh, named Orsolia, played by Cynthia Mace. But um, the setup of this play is that uh, Adina Menzel's husband, uh, well, her marriage has broken up not long before, and she's very, very upset now because uh, the engagement party of her ex-husband and his new young wife has just happened. So there is much discussion um, among the characters about uh, how that situation relates to the uh, the Elliot relationship with Trey and you know how much of it is sex and how much of it is love uh, is there any love involved um, what is the worth ultimately of physical beauty and um, I have to say the the Elliot character Jack Weatherall gives a very very persuasive monologue on that subject uh, and he basically says to to his daughter Jody well you know uh, uh, my entire career and all the money that our family has is all based on sex and physical beauty. And he, he gives a very, very, very persuasive argument for how, how important and powerful that is. And I think he says at one point that, you know, beauty is everything. Uh, youth and sex and beauty are everything. And, uh, you know, Jody argues otherwise, but uh, and then and then the boy toy has his his say about it, and um, and Benjamin, uh, Jody's son, he uh, he gets involved in the in the discussion as well. But also, he uh, there's a scene between him and Trey where they it seems like they might get together sexually in order, to, so that just uh, uh, complicates matters further. Um, but this is it's really. Really well done, uh, directed by Daniel Hawkins at the Roundabout Theater Company at the Laura Pels. And uh, it was great to see Adina Menzel in a non-musical role. I thought she did a, a really wonderful job as an actress. And uh, as I think I mentioned last week, Jack Weatherall, uh, I had not seen on stage in a long time. I'm, I'm not sure what he's done recently. He's a, a Canadian actor, but I did see him many years ago as a replacement in the original production of The Elephant Man. So it was really, really nice to see him on stage again. And I think this... Um, I think this play definitely has uh, a future life to it. If, if nothing else, it will be done everywhere 
uh, regionally and and in, in you know on levels like that in colleges and things of that sort. I think um, maybe with guest artists uh, to come in for the older people, but um, I, I I'm very glad I saw it and. Joshua Harmon, I, I think, is has become well established already, and we can expect many more wonderful things from him as well. All right, so that is Skin Tight at Roundabout, uh, the Laura Pell's Tiny Theater downstairs, and uh, Jan, you got over to Playwrights Horizons where you saw Log, Log Cabin. Excuse me. Uh, so tell us about Log Cabin. Well. Uh, as people know, June uh, is Pride Month, and the New York theaters uh, programmed a lot of plays that dealt with gay themes uh, during uh, June, and some of those plays are continuing into July, and Log Cabin is one of them. Uh, some people may know that uh, Log Cabin is also the term used to uh, apply to um, some gay Republicans. I think their organization was known as Log Cabin, um, obviously echoing back to uh, Abraham Lincoln's um, Log Cabin. I thought that this play would deal somewhat with uh, that kind of politics, Republican politics, conservative politics, and um, uh, uh, gay people, but it doesn't. It's set up is there are two couples, uh, a male couple and a, a female couple. Uh, both couples are interracial. There is a, a black a black man and a white man, an Asian woman and a white woman. They are close friends. They're all uh, very affluent. They uh, uh, dine together, uh, see one another quite a bit. The female couple has just had a child, and they are in the flush and, and mania of new parenthood. Um, the male couple uh, is there to be supportive uncles and godparents and, 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 and that kind of thing. And we also detect to begin to think about whether or not they want to be parents uh, as well. There is a fifth friend uh, in this constellation of friends um, whose uh, name now is Henry, but Henry was, when they were uh, coming up, when they were young, uh, Helen. And Henry was the best friend of, uh, Helen was the best friend of Ezra. Ezra is played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson. And they were very good friends, I think, from grade school on through college into adulthood. And it was, I think, past college when Helen decided to begin her transition and uh, became uh, Henry. Henry is played by Ian Harvey, who is also a, a transgender uh, man. Ian 
brings his young girlfriend uh, to the party. And Ezra's problem with Ian and with this younger girlfriend, sort of echoing the, the, the play that Michael just talked about, it's not so much the age difference. It is their dynamic. Uh, Ezra feels that uh, Henry has an old-fashioned, stereotypical idea of the way that men and women should uh, relate. And he's also having difficulty dealing with his longtime friend, who is now a man. Um, And so what the playwright, Jordan Harrison, is exploring is the way that the gay community is dealing with transgender people. This is, I think, a very valid and interesting uh, issue to explore, but Harrison sort of trips over himself, uh, his own feet, in exploring uh, these, these issues and pushes it uh, in ways that I can't say are not serious, um, but perhaps maybe he, he's, he's overly serious. He wants to touch on everyone's arguments. He wants to, he's a little bit walking on eggshells because he's not, I don't think, as clear as he wants to be on all of uh, these issues. And it just adds up to a very unsatisfying uh, evening. And it shouldn't because the actors... Uh, uh, Philip James Brannan plays uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson's partner. Um, uh, Talene Monahan, I believe, uh, uh, plays um, uh, the partner of um, uh, Cindy Chung. Uh, they're all very good. Uh, they 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 work very hard to make this uh, an effective presentation of the arguments that he wants to make, but the arguments are all over the place. Well, it's that's so interesting, Jan. I have not seen the play yet, but I thought it was going to deal with the, what so many people see as an inherent contradiction in mm-hmm. just the very term "gay Republican," given what the you know that the party's platform has been right. for, for, for many years now and, and the, the generally conservative uh, bent of it and, 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 and the, the fact that so many prominent Republicans are so virulently anti-gay. Uh, but this sounds like it's uh, – the focus is, is more specific it and, is. Also, and also uh, – but not, not as successful as – No, now. no. I, I – like you was went in thinking it was going to be uh, that subject, and I was really interested in seeing uh, their dealing. I guess the conservatism comes from the uh, Ezra character's inability to be as embracing of uh, his friend's uh, new life, new identity, mm-hmm. and uh, so 
Harrison is playing with that kind of uh, politics, gender politics within uh, the, the, the gay community as opposed to outside of it. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me that over the past uh, couple of years, we've seen a transition in the kinds of plays uh, about gay people primarily gay men that are being written. So it's not the come out drama. It's not the, oh, woe is me, I'm gay um, uh, uh, story. Sure, Uh, sure. You know, I don't think anybody feels, oh, woe. Um, So uh, it's interesting to see playwrights trying to explore other stories, other subjects, other issues. And this one, I think, is an interesting uh, uh, issue. And I think the whole idea of how people deal with uh, friends, intimates, who have made that transition, not knowing exactly what words to use, not all of those kinds of uh, issues are important and interesting, but he just has not found a way to make it dramatically interesting. Mm, that's too bad. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll move forward into uh, Michael got a chance to see what turned out to be the hot ticket of the week. Mm. Uh, Songs for a New World at City Center. Encore's Off Center uh, to the point where... They opened up the second balcony at City Center to let people in because there was such a demand for the tickets. So, Michael, tell us about this. Oh, that's interesting what you just said. I, I mean, as far as I know, that they always uh, uh, sell. Maybe, well, maybe they don't always sell that that very rear section uh, not, because not for off center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the uh, part of the uh, the encores series devoted to off-Broadway shows that, that, that they have begun a, a few years ago and has uh, been an adjunct to the, uh, to the regular Encores series during the year, which are generally or always shows that had played on Broadway and now are underappreciated. Um, Songs for a New World, Music and Lyrics by Jason Robert Brown, um, originally conceived by Daisy Prince, originally produced by the w, WPA Theater, New York City, 1995. Um, this uh, uh, Encore's Off Center production had choreography by Rennie Harris, music director Tom Murray, directed by Kate Worski. Um, uh, Jason himself has, has been very vocal about the fact that this show, ha- it has gained a tremendous fan base, as, as James uh, just indicated, um, but uh, would almost certainly not have done so if it hadn't been for the original off-Broadway cast recording, because the the, the original off-Broadway production had a very brief run. And the recording, it... it, it you know, is what allows the score to live on. Uh, This is also the case with at least one other Jason Robert Brown show, uh, The Last Five Years, which also had a very, very short off-Broadway run, but is now one of the most produced uh, musicals ever. Uh, So one cannot underestimate the importance of an original cast recording. I think that point has been made many, many times, and I think everyone believes it now and no one would argue otherwise it's so it's really uh just a question of figuring out some way to fund them uh and there have been 
some really uh, interesting new ways of funding recordings that have been developed uh, in, in recent decades by people like Kurt Deutsch. Uh, so bravo to all of them because it's, it's, that's just what you need. You have to have one in order for your show to live on. Um, for this production, the vocalists were Shoshana Bean, Colin Donnell, Mikhail Kilgore and Saleya Pfeiffer. And then um, the dancing was handled by uh, the dancers were Phil S. Catino Jr., Virgil Gadsen, Miley Ho, Samantha Shepard, and Denzel Thompson Stout. Um, and everything was really, really well done. The, uh, uh, I, I thought it was one of the best. Uh, sound amplifications that I have ever heard at Encore. So uh, Leon Rothenberg deserves a great amount of credit for that. And this the song, uh, I mean, the audience response to this was absolutely rapturous. Uh, to be honest, I thought sometimes the audience was making it more about themselves and their joy in having gotten the ticket <laughs> than about uh, the singers. Uh, in particular, Mikhail Kilgore had a number or two where people were screaming and shouting while he was singing. I, I always, I don't know, I, I guess I'm from a different generation. I, I've I've gone to opera for decades, and at the opera, when you have um, uh, uh, the tenor hit the, a gorgeous high C in Que Gelida Manina from La Boheme, or if you have a soprano doing an incredible coloratura run uh, up to a high E flat in Lucia de Lammermore, people don't scream and shout and applaud during the singing. They wait until, you know, it's it, it, until the the, the aria is over. So, uh, but uh, I guess I'll just have to give it up because that doesn't seem to be um, the way present day audiences respond to musical theater. And, and I, 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 you know, I'm allowed not to like it, but I, I just have to recognize that, that that's the way it is now and that's the way it's going to be. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I mean, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, Mikhail Kilgore was phenomenal in this show. He had an absolutely beautiful voice. Same uh, with the rest of the cast. Shoshana Bean has been around for a while, but I have I have not seen her in quite some time. Colin Donnell, uh, also many credits that that I'm sure many of our listeners are aware of. And Saleya Pfeiffer, uh, really superb cast. And uh, this could not have been more successful. I think this, um, this really was an absolute bullseye, 100% triumph for New York city center encores off center. Uh, I'm very glad that I got to see it. I'm glad they opened the second balcony so that more people could get a chance to see it. And I would not be remotely surprised <laughs> if there's some kind of future life for this production with the same cast and creative staff because it was really really superb is there a connecting storyline this isn't a show i know no no it's it's um i i'm not a hundred percent familiar with the genesis the genesis but it's it's just really great songs on on varying subjects i i i wouldn't say there's it's, any kind of a through line the except, through line oh, the through line is uh people meeting uh, life challenges yeah yeah a very mm. general uh, of that sort and and there's, and there's the, not a through line of characters per se right mm -hmm. right and 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 one wonderful thing about it is that it it allows uh jason and of course it was you know a relatively 
uh, early work for him, uh, quite early work. Uh, it allows him to show how he's able to write so successfully in several, several different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, rhythms and melodies, and and uh, really, uh, and and it doesn't seem um, scattershot because it is basically a review. It's not as if um, songs in 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 wildly varying st- styles were included in a narrative, which sometimes uh, can be an issue for me. But this is just, it's it's almost. Uh, like a, a a huge calling card for him, and I guess that's really mm-hmm. how it how it served for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it it really put him on the map, and 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 he is one of our absolutely most talented musical theater composers. And this it, this shows that that talent was there really from the beginning. Right, Michael, you got over to Transport Group's uh, concert of Promises Promises at Merkin Concert Hall. Tell us about that. Yes, this was a benefit for the transport group. So uh, it was a pay ticket on my part, but I was happy to pay because it's one of my favorite scores, Promises, mm. Promises, music by Burt Bacharach, lyrics by Hal David. Um, and they promised, they promised mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a full orchestra. And, you know, that can be uh, interpreted in, in different ways, but I'm happy to say it was a full orchestra. It was 23 musicians on stage at Merkin Hall uh, playing the fabulous original orchestrations by Jonathan Tunick. Uh, uh, 23 musicians plus the four pit singers, um, women, uh, that the score was written for. Uh, this is one of, I, I would say at least two really famous Broadway shows that came out within a few years, years of each other, um, at a time when having pit singers like that was, was, uh, I would say briefly popular. It, it didn't really seem to last, but it really adds to the experience. So this show and company, uh, is another show uh, which was also uh, orchestrated by Jonathan Tunick. So I, 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 I'm not sure. Uh, I, well, anyway, he he did the orchestrations for both, and I guess Bacharach and Sondheim uh, felt that that would really add to those two scores, and 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 the Pitt singers definitely do. Um, this, uh, let's see. Oh, this production, the the orchestra was conducted by musical director John Chancy. Um, it, the evening was co-hosted by Jill O'Hara and Margot Sappington from the original Broadway cast, uh, and they gave a lot of uh, their own memories of the production, which, you know, which starred Jerry Orbach and and. Uh, it was choreographed by Michael Bennett and uh, Donna McKechnie was also in it. So there, there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting history to that show. Uh, the cast of the Transport Group concert included San- Santino Fontana, uh, his wife Jessica Fontana, John Cariani, Ali Stroker, Mark Kudish, Tally Sessions, and Stanley Bowerick. Um, and I would say that. Uh, this really was a better experience overall than the 2010 Broadway revival, which for me was marred by poor direction and some uh, really ill-advised changes to the score. So I'm I'm very, very glad that I got to see this because uh, I do not know when or if I will get to hear the original orchestrations again uh, and, and performed by such a talented cast. All right. So as you mentioned, that was a one-night-only thing. So it's gone. (laughs) 
All right. Uh, Jan, you got over to Manhattan Theater Club to see Sugar in Our Wounds. So tell us about that. Sugar in Our Wounds is a play by Dunja R. Love, and it's part of a projected trilogy, I guess an actual trilogy, because uh, the second play is going to be done by um, Atlantic Theater uh, later in this new season. He has taken or given himself the task of writing about black people and specifically black gay people at certain historical periods. Uh, The three periods he's chosen are with this play, Sugar and Our Wounds. It's set in 1862 uh, on a southern plantation. The second and third plays are set during the Civil Rights Movement and during the Black Lives Matter movement. And basically what Love is trying to do is to say we black people were there. We were there. Our stories aren't told in gay plays. Our stories aren't told in black plays. And I want to tell our stories because we were there. And he has told this one in a somewhat melodramatic but still quite beautiful way. Uh, The story, uh, as I said, is set on the southern plantation primarily takes place in uh, a shack where a uh, a makeshift family of people uh, live. They are led by an older woman uh, whom everyone calls Aunt Mama, and they all say she is older than God. She has been on the plantation for a very long time, and she serves as a maternal figure. Her actual job on the plantation is looking after the children of uh, the enslaved people when they go out into the fields. And she also looks after this family that she has in the shack. The family consists of James, uh, a young boy who may be actually blood-related to uh, Aunt Mama. Uh, his mother di- was sold off, I be- or no, his mother died when he was young, and his father, and we're told really early on in the play, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather were all lynched on this large tree that dominates the set. Um, And his fear is that he too may be, end up a victim of this tree. As the play opens, he is being given a reading lesson by the young mistress of the plantation. Uh, As people may or may not have remembered, uh, it was illegal for slaves to read, and it was illegal to teach them to read. Her husband, however, has gone off to fight in the Civil War for the Confederacy, of course, and she's bored. And so she has taken this as a hobby to to do. She comes in and she teaches him uh, to read. She is not respectful of him or of his life or of the people uh, who who live with him. It's really a a hobby 
one that she treats almost as the way uh, someone would uh, in interacting with a pet. Uh, also in the cabin is a young woman, Maddie, who is, we uh, later learn, the uh, daughter of the master of the plantation, the father-in-law of the young woman who has come in to uh, do the teaching. Um, uh, and Maddie has a difficult life because she's not totally accepted in either place. Her fair skin sets her apart from the other slaves. And then arriving is Henry. And Henry is a new acquisition uh, for the plantation. He's not, he's not happy uh, being on this new plantation. He's been separated from his family. He's not uh, uh, happy with these people he has to live with. Uh, he, and he is totally intent on escaping he wants to escape and go north. But during the course of his time there, he and James develop a friendship and then more. And the play, the, the sort of friction, uh, 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 the conflict of the play is on will they leave will they stay will the dangers involved in leaving lead to the fulfillment of james's fear that he will be uh uh lynched on uh this tree um it's beautifully somewhat written in dialogue we were talking about a dialect we were talking about dialect earlier on with carmen jones um but it but it's heightened dialect and so there's a poetry uh uh, uh to it and I, as i said there's a melodramatic quality to the play but I have to say the thing that I liked the most about it is that, um, and this isn't taking away from the play itself, because I think this is what Love intended. The night I saw it, I would say a quarter of the audience was um, black male couples. And they were so visibly and at times audibly moved by uh, this performance that uh, I was sitting next to a couple and they kept clutching one another's hands. They could not believe that they were actually seeing some sort of representation of themselves in a beautiful way on stage. And I was as much moved by that, I have to say, as I was um, by the uh, uh, play itself, which I do think um, will be done uh, it's it's an interesting way to look at that period um, in history. I've I'm, I've been one of these people who has said enough with the slavery plays, enough with the slavery movies. Okay, we've we've done that. We've said what needs to be said about it, and this playwright found a way to say something uh, different. Um, and uh, so I I really recommend this play but i have to say i think it is now a tough ticket to to to, to get 
Yes, because uh, aside from everything, it's in a very small theater. And yes, I, at yes. Manhattan Theater Club. Yes, in yeah. their small uh, uh, center stage two space. Yeah, I was just uh, looking here uh, about the tickets. The, uh, everything that I'm seeing is nothing's available. Yeah, let me right. see. Not available. Yeah, it is. Uh, one last page. Oh, July 9th through the 15th, there are some tickets left, but yeah, very else, few. Yeah, very few. Uh, but only the July 9th through 15th. So if you listen to this podcast quickly, you might be able to get them. <laughs> what you should also do, though, is keep an eye out for his next play. Hmm. Uh, again, Dunja, it's D-O-N-J-A-R, Love. And the next play, and I don't remember the title, Bad Me, but it is going to be done at the Atlantic. And so uh, I certainly am going to be keeping an eye out for it. Um, he's a very interesting uh, playwright, and I love the idea of, of any playwright uh, expanding the kinds of stories that we uh, tell. Uh, we should see if we can get him on stagecraft. I that is my intent <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to try to try and do that uh, either for this play or for the for the next one. I think he's he he he's a really interesting person. All right. In the news this week, we uh, heard about the passing of Lilian Montevecchi. Um, so, Michael, why don't you tell us about Lilian? Yes, if it's uh, okay, I would love to dedicate this podcast to Lilian Montevecchi, who died on July 29th at 85. Um, she is known for her Broadway performances in Nine and Grand Hotel. Also, the the legendary Follies in Concert uh, years ago at Paper Mill uh, at, I'm sorry, at <laughs> Avery Fisher Hall. And then some years later, the full production at the Paper Mill Playhouse, in which she played Solange Lafitte in, in both productions. But she had a huge career before those, those late career triumphs. She was in Roland Petit's dance company uh, in the 50s, I think. And uh, she made films with the likes of Leslie Caron, Fred Astaire, and Elvis. Uh, <laughs> and she was also, in in Nine, She her character famously sings about the Folie Bergère, and she was an actual member of the Folies, Folie Bergère. She was an extraordinary woman with uh, a, a very, very vibrant, charming personality. She was French and Italian. Uh, that's where the Montevecchi uh, comes in, which uh, that, that, if that sounds Italian to you, you're, you're right. Uh, and she had a wonderful manner of speech, a lovely, lovely French accent. And I think that Broadway audiences really, really adored her and loved the fact that she had this, these relatively late, very late career triumphs. Uh, but once she, once she came back, really in nine, uh, she, she, she remained and she remained active ever since then over the decades. And uh, I, uh, just about a year ago, just over a year ago, she was in a wonderful uh, Wright and Forest. Uh, tribute concert that the Ziegfeld Society did that our, our friend Walter Willison put together 
uh, and she was one of the headliners in that, and uh, still at the height of her powers, even though we heard at the time that she was already quite ill. You would never ever have known it just by seeing her on stage. Uh, that may have been her last public performance. I, I haven't had a chance to check that out, but I would not be surprised. Um, I, I'm so happy I got to see that and, and that I did get to see her in Nine and Grand Hotel and Follies at Paper Mill. And there's the video of the uh, Avery Fisher Hall concert, which uh, you know has become legendary. So you can pick that up. And that's uh, in addition to the films that I mentioned, uh, her uh, a lot of her work is well documented and uh please treat yourself to watching some of that if you haven't already she was an extraordinary extraordinary woman all right so we'll have a link to uh the hollywood reporter where david rooney talks about lillian uh in the show notes if you want to get more information about that oh wonderful all right before before we get into trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio's podcasts. Contact information for Jan, for Michael, for me uh, can be found at in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So let's bring in Peter from the Minneapolis airport. (laughs) At the moment, I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, coming back from Lincoln, Nebraska, where I was at the International Thespian Festival. So um, in about a half hour, I'll be boarding to go back to Newark. So that's where I am. Now you know. (laughs) All right. So give me an answer to last week's trivia. Yeah, I talked about what was the shortest running play that uh, inspired an even shorter running musical. And uh, Richard Brennan guessed Caesar and Cleopatra in her first Roman because Caesar and Cleopatra ran 49 performances and her first Roman 17. Good guess, but not the right answer. Uh, Jeff Falenga guessed the human comedy. Actually, the human comedy musical didn't run long, but there was never a, mus- an, a human comedy play, so that didn't work out either. No, Corey Winslow and John Moss were the only ones to get the answer. Because um, the play, once there was a Russian, opened February 18th, 1961, and closed February 18th, 1961. It ran one performance. Mm. And yet, the musical version called Pleasures and Palaces closed in Detroit. It couldn't even run one performance on Broadway. They didn't even try Broadway. And that was in 1965. So that's the answer. And congratulations to Messrs. Winslow and Moss. (laughs) Now, this week... Precisely on his 30th birthday, a musical opened, which would soon lose the Tony for Best Musical. He drew the logo for it. What is the logo? Who is he? And what was the name of the Tony losing musical? Okay, so if you know that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of a traveling Peter Felicia... A Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye, and happy 4th of July. Yes. Smiles and you'll stay forever. She sings, ha, she's got you now for sure. 
And each time that you swear that you will not give in, she'll throw you a stare that'll show you can win. It's amazing how hard each man tries, but she cries. I'll give you stars in the moon and the open highway and a river beneath your feet. I'll give you days full of dreams if you travel my way on a summer you can't repeat. I'll give you nights full of passion and days of adventure. No strings, just warm summer rain. And I thought, you know, I'd rather have champagne. Chief of the sea, high in the wind, at least I try to be, and I'm a king of the world. Please set me free. I had the power and the promise. Give me back my family. You gotta live how you gotta live. You gotta do what you gotta do. Cause the river don't, the river won't. 